0: You are listening to a White Ridge Baptist Church sermon podcast. I love those kinds of uh, hymns where uh, it's a mixture of, of uh, talking to God in, in worship and it's talking to yourself and theologizing and convincing yourself again of realities and truths that you've decided you're going to live by, but you sometimes get caught up in other things. And, um Amen. I want to mention, uh, I was glad when I listened to the sermon online this past week, I was away uh, for a study leave, and Azar preached, and I listened to the sermon online, I was glad that he made reference to the building project that our church is planning and praying around, and uh, next week, John Wiltshire, who's our uh, chairman for the Capital Funds team, is going to come and share in both services a little bit of a highlight. You can uh, know that uh, the, boor- the board and, and the staff are intentionally praying and thinking through many things uh, about this, we have a retreat in a couple of weeks. That's not specifically about the building project, but about what it is in, in equipping the, the church that God has put under our care. And we believe with all of our hearts that we are building a people of God. That uh, part of what we are uh, trying to do most is is prepare this congregation for being the people of God in this generation. And each of you individually in the realm and influence that God has planted you in. And we have a long way to go in that, but we are intentionally pursuing that with all of our might, and I ask you to pray for the board and for the staff that as we continue to meet together and pursue this, that God would meet us. And indeed, the building is a very important strategic piece of that because uh, we need facilities to facilitate ministry. And so uh, we look forward to what John has to share with us next week. Azur talked to us last week about 2 Samuel chapter 7 and about what worship and true worship is all about. As uh, David has this experience with God through the prophet Nathan. And how on his heart is the desire to build the temple. And yet God tells him, no, it's not for you to do this. It's going to be your son Solomon that will do this. And in the process, Azar talked to us about what true worship is and what true worship is not. It is not about us. It is about the sovereign Lord. It is not an activity. It is a lifestyle. It is not centered in a building. It's centered in the hearts of the individuals that crown Jesus Christ as Lord because that's what God is doing, is building a people. And it's all about worship. I um, I've, been, I've read a book this past summer by Timothy Keller called Preaching, and uh, the book talks about uh, how to approach preaching. But you know, when you see guys up here preaching, there's there's three texts that are going on, T-E-X-T-S. And I like the way Keller talks about it because I think we usually just think about one text. We think about the Bible passage that... that whoever is up here is preaching from. But Keller says there's three texts. There's the text itself, the Bible passage, which we believe is anointed by God for people, God's people in all generations to build them up and to cause them to become the people of God in that generation. But there's also the context. And the context is you people right here. This culture, this Christian church, this people you and what you bring to this church, what you bring into your life, your heart, your motives, your your context. This is where the message of the Scripture is being applied in this context. The third text that I had really never thought much about is what Keller calls the subtext. And the subtext is the interesting thing. It is the message under the message. The subtext is the motivating factor beyond everything that is written and everything that is done in this context. It's the subtext. It's the why. It's the what's the driving force of your life and of our life. What's the message really being communicated by the preacher in my mannerisms, in my eyes, in my body language, in my voice inflection, in all that I do? What's the real message that's coming through under the message of the text in the context? And Keller says there's four possible subtexts. And the first one has to do with reinforcement. So in other words, when, I, when we get up to preach and we share and so on, the reinforcement subtext that could be coming subliminally, consciously or unconsciously, to the people of God, it could be the message, aren't we great? You know, we come together outside of the, away from the world out there, And we come together, and now we're here together, and we're going to encourage each other. We believe in God, and we're going to open up His Word. And and aren't we great? And that can have various levels, too. Aren't we, the White Ridge Baptist Church, great beyond even the Christian? Very dangerous subtext. That's not God-glorifying. I hope that's not the subtext of services, of preaching, of ministry here. The second one that Keller talks about is is an even scarier one, and it's the performance subtext. And it's saying, aren't I great? That somehow in the self-referencing the preacher does, in the dropping of names and situations, The preacher somehow is really, really trying to communicate the message to you that, wow, I'm something special. You're, you're You're pretty lucky to have me. I sure hope that's not ever coming across. The third subtext that comes through in Keller's book is what he calls the training subtext. Now, the training subtext is very, very scary and it's very subtle because it is saying, Isn't truth great? Boy, I kind of fall into that one sometimes. Isn't truth great? Isn't it good that we believe this book and all of the principles that come out of this book? Isn't truth great? It is indeed great, it's incredible the principles of God's word. You can boil that down, you can chop it up a little finer. You could divide the truth into all the camps of truth. You could say, aren't we reformed calvinistic kind of people great? Isn't the arminian aren't we great? Aren't the charismatic aren't we great as charismatic? Aren't we great as dispensational? Aren't we great as and you can list all the camps of Christianity down through the ages that truth is built on and you can say aren't isn't truth great? But it's not. It's not the subtext that God's Word and God's people should be hearing. I'm afraid I fall into that camp too often, that I end the sermon and I'm afraid that I'm ending with, isn't truth great? Isn't this truth great? You see, where we ought to be getting to is the fourth subtext. And the the fourth subtext is not, aren't we great? It's not, aren't I great? It's not, isn't truth great? It's, isn't Jesus Christ great? (laughs) Isn't he great? If everything we do doesn't go there, we're wrong. We're off base. Because you see, everything in our lives should have the subtext of worship. I fail in sermon preaching and preparation if you leave and you say, what a great sermon, instead of saying, what a great Christ. We fail in leading worship and music and and. and Everything that we do, we fail in ministry, in service, everything. If we do not come out of it somehow thinking, isn't Jesus Christ incredible? John the Baptist is, is perhaps our, our good example of this, where, where he just said in his testimony, he must become greater and I must become less. That's, that's the worship subtext, you see. He said, I'm I'm just a voice. That's all I am. I'm just a voice out in the wilderness crying, prepare the way for the Lord. He's coming. And then he he said this. He added these words. He said, among you stands one you don't know. I think every time we get up to preach and every time we get up to lead worship, it should be heavy, heavy upon us that the people of God that is assembled together, that among us stands someone that we don't know, Jesus Christ. If we knew him, if we knew him the way that he is knowable, if we knew him the way that he really is, if we knew him in the way that he wants to be known, we would bow down, we would cry, we would lay our lives before him, we would, we would give our all to him, there would be no end to what God could do in an assembly of three or 400 Christians in a church with a people that are so ravaged by the Holy Spirit and are so earnest about a worship subtext in their lives. I say all of that to say this, that I believe David's subtext was a worshiping subtext. And as presented us with this a little bit last week, I think that everything that we see David doing, almost everything we see David doing, we could see the worship subtext. When he killed Goliath, I think there's a worship subtext. How could you dare defy the armies of the living God? There's a worship subtext there. And when he didn't kill Saul, there's a worship subtext. How dare you lay a finger on the Lord's anointed? You see, there was a worship subtext in everything that David sought to do, and I believe in our chapter that we're looking at today, in chapter 8 of 2 Samuel, we will find a worship subtext come out. In fact, the Scripture, I believe, is teaching us today this this very essential truth, that David took all of the fame... And all of the favor that God poured down on him, and he just took it and he turned it back up to God in worship. That's what we see David doing in his life. And so if you have your Bibles with you and want to open to it in chapter 8, before you look at chapter 8 with me, just take a note of of a key verse in chapter 7 that was shared last week. When David says in verse 18, who am I, O sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me thus far? Can you not hear the worship subtext there? Who am I? It's kind of like a personalized version of Psalm 8 that David wrote when he said, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you should even care? Oh God, you're so awesome. You see, there's a worship subtext in that. And today, as we look at our Bibles, we're going to see a summary chapter in chapter 8 of all that God had led David to do up until that time. So we're going to just read a couple of verses, and um, I'd ask you to look at chapter 8 and begin in verse 13. Would you stand with me if you're able to and hear God's Word read? Chapter 8, verse 13, and David became famous. After he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt, he put garrisons throughout Edom, and all the Edomites became subject to David. And the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. May God bless his word. You may be seated. The sermon notes in your bulletin describe the outline that I borrowed from a book by Alan Redpath called The Making of a Man of God. And we will talk this morning about the scope of the strategy for and the sequel to the victory that God gives David. And so first of all, I'd like us to talk about the scope of this victory, and we need to go back to verse 1 of chapter 8 to do so. And you'll notice in chapter 1, verse 8, there's a very common phrase in the course of time. It says in the New International Version, some of your Bibles will say, and it came to pass. Now, whenever you read that in the Bible, the narrator, the author, is just simply trying to summarize and not get bogged down in a whole bunch of detail, and it came to pass. Just don't, don't worry about all the detail. It came to pass. In the course of time, this is what happened. This is what the author is doing here. He is trying not to get bogged down in detail, but in this, in this summary statement, we see that what God did through David was so complete, beginning in verse 1. We read about D- David defeating the Philistines, which are to the west of Jerusalem along the Mediterranean Sea coast. And he subdued them, and it says he, he took Methegama from their control, verse 1, and that is, an, is not a known place. That's not a city. That is actually a term that means, uh, literally, it means the bridal of the mother city. Kind of a strange thing, the bridal of the mother of the mother city. And most people believe that that it's a term that's just saying that David took a key city of the Philistines and he took control of that key city, which gave him strategy over the enemy. You see, when you take the bridle of something, you're controlling. So that's why the NIV translators use the word control in this passage, took took the bridle uh, of the mother city. Secondly, verse 2, David defeated the Moabites, you'll notice that, and the Moabite country was to the east beyond the Dead Sea, and they became subject to David. The Moabites were a a terrible people, they were wicked, they had uh, attacked and and hurt Israel for generations, and God acted out His judgment on them through David. Verse 3 and 4, other enemies along the Euphrates, in verse 5 and 6, we read, of the Arameans of Damascus, and they are to the north of Jerusalem. And they became subject and brought tribute to David. Finally, in verse 14, we read that the Edomites to the south also become subject to David. And so on all sides, north, south, east, and west, God gave David victory. Now, is this just David, some warlord, just going around slaughtering people that are against him with no plan? Or is there something more strategic about it? Well, it's very strategic actually. If you go back into the Bible in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 18, you'll read that God told Abraham, here's the boundaries of the promised land that I will give to your descendants. And so it says to your descendants, I will give you this land from the river Egypt to the great river Euphrates. Basically saying from the way down south to way up north between the Mediterranean and the Dead Sea. And God gave them all this land. Now David, what was he doing? He was enacting on the promises of God. And for the first time in all of Israel's history, they actually have almost all of the land of Canaan that they were supposed to have when Joshua and the Israelites went and took it a long time before. They had lost even more of it during the Saul's reign, but now David is recapturing it. And so we see him... Uh, having conquest and capturing lost land. At this time in David's life, David writes a psalm. You'll notice it in Psalm 60, if you have time to turn to it. Psalm chapter 60. David writes this psalm at that time in his life. And listen to what he writes. He says, "'You have rejected us, O God, and burst forth upon us and been angry.'" But now restore us. You have shaken the land and torn it open. Mend its fractures, for it is quaking. You have shown your people desperate times. You have given us wine that makes us stagger. But for those who fear you, you have been raising a banner to be unfurled against the bowl. Save us and help us with your right hand, that those you love may be delivered. God has spoken. From his sanctuary, notice the worship subtext here. In triumph I will parcel out Shechem, the measure of the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is my helmet. Notice God saying, this is my country, that's my land, I promised it to you, go and take it, he's saying, David's saying. If Ephraim is my helmet, Judah my scepter, Moab is my wash basin. Upon Edom I toss my sandal, over Philistia I shout in triumph, Who will bring me to the fortified city and lead me to Edom? Is it, not, it is, is it not you, O God, you who have rejected us and no longer go out with our armies? Give us aid against the enemy, for the help of man is worthless. With God we will gain the victory and we will trample down our enemies." You see, what David is doing, David is just counting on God to be faithful, to take possession of what God had promised will be his people's possession. And so, key verses in this passage in 2 Samuel 8, verse 6 and verse 14, they repeat the same phrase, the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. But wherever he went was exactly according to the promise that God gave. How do we apply this to our lives today? Verse 12 needs to be applied to each one of us. With God we will gain the victory and He will trample down our enemies. David's life in the history of Israel is like a reminder of who God is to us. He's the covenant-keeping God. Even when it does not appear that He's in control, that He is this covenant-keeping God of love to each one of us. It means that in Jesus Christ, we can have victory on all fronts, whatever comes against you, that God is with you and for you, and the promises of God to expand and enlarge your life in Christ is for you. Our history does not need to define us, our past mistakes, our rebellions, our sorrows, all the things of our past do not need to dictate our present or our future discipleship. In the covenant of Christ, the scope of the victory is on all sides. It's an incredible message. We need to step out and trust God. We've not yet tasted of all the blessings that Christ has for us, in overcoming sin, in loving our enemies, in forgiving those who are hard on us, in answered prayer, in seeing souls around us be saved, in becoming a church that is a true caring community, in impacting the city of Winnipeg, we have not begun to see what God wants to do through a people that have a worship subtext. The strategy is a second point that I want to refer to today. And the strategy is maybe the wrong word to use, but Really, in simple terms, the victory that is gained by David is simply as a result of living under the principles that God had given him to live by. I want you to notice, first of all, a word that is used a few times, and I said earlier it's translated control. Verse 1, David took Methegama from the control of the Philistines. Verse 3, David went to restore his control along the Euphrates River. And this word is the same as that which is used in chapter 5, 19, when God, David inquires of the Lord, and he says, shall I go and attack the Philistines? Will you hand them over to me? That's the same word as control. Will you give me control of them? The word control is the word hand in this Hebrew text. And it's saying basically, uh, and, then, and then God responds and he says, I will hand them over to you. I'll hand the Philistines over to you. You see, whatever's in your hands, it's in control. If I were to give you a microphone right now, you'd be in control of the microphone. And so, as, as, as a strategy of how we gain victory, we have to start by looking at what controls us. You see, God's people had been placed in the control of enemies. And David went and restored control over them So that God was sovereign Lord again. And if you take inventory of your life and you can see that on some of the fronts of your life you're having victory. And other fronts you you face defeat over and over again. Then something else is controlling you. 2 Timothy chapter 2.19, it says that a person is a slave to whatever has mastery over him. And if we live under God's sovereign control and His Spirit, then then we don't need to live under the control of a foreign substance, of a foreign person, of another principality, of something that is addictive, and so on. But it means letting God have control, not letting anything become a snare to us. Some people are questioning, have asked, why in verse 4 of chapter 8, Why does David hamstring all these horses instead of of taking them to be with him in his cavalry, having the biggest army on earth at the time maybe? Well, the fact is, um, David perhaps had been familiar with Deuteronomy chapter 17 where it says, the king must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or accumulate large amounts of silver or gold for his heart will lead him astray. You see, David was trying to be earnest to not let anything become a snare, to not be controlled by any other thing in his kingdom. And so the question is asked then, why is it that great quantities of silver and gold and bronze were acquired by David? As we see in this scripture, and in the answer comes in verse 11. It says, King David dedicated these articles to the Lord as he had done with silver and gold from all the nations that he had subdued. You see, the, the horses paid were of no value in the worship subtext of his life. He wanted to depend on God. He couldn't take the horses and do something with them in the temple that Solomon was going to build. But all this gold and silver and bronze was very useful for Solomon. In fact, we read in 1 Kings chapter 7 and verse 51... When all the work King Solomon had done for the temple was finished, he brought in the things that his father had dedicated. It says, the silver and the gold and the furnishings, and he placed them in the treasury of the Lord's temple. You see, David worshiped. David lived by a worship subtext. Everything he did, even in fighting battles, was because of worship. Next we see in verse 15 that David reigned over all Israel doing what was just and right. And so David not only took the fame and the favor that God had given him and he brought it in and he turned it back to God in worship, but he also turned it outward to his kingdom in a fair and just society. And next week when we open up chapter 9, we're going to see that as he turns beyond his kingdom to other places, he finds that there's someone that needs his mercy and kindness. And he finds that there's one surviving son of his friend Jonathan. And so he pours out his mercy and kindness on Mephibosheth. What an interesting way of living our lives patterning after the two greatest commandments. Jesus said, My followers are concerned about only two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor like you love yourself. I don't know about you, but when I put my head on my pillow at night sometimes, I think about those two commands, and I think I do a terrible job at them. When the report card comes in at night, and and I'm thinking about the day, I think, I did not love God with all my being today. And I sure didn't love my neighbor like I love myself. I love myself a lot. <laughs> I don't say that to beat me up or you up. I'm not saying, I believe we live in, a, in, in Jesus Christ. By faith in him, there's no condemnation. There's this incredible sea of grace that I swim in. But I want to give him way more of my devotion. He's worthy of so much more than what I'm giving him. The sequel to the victory that God gives David is seen in verses 6 and 14. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. I don't have time to talk about the cabinet ministers for David's government found in verses 16 to 18 and some other things in this text, but I want to conclude by asking us what the subtext of our lives are. I want to ask us to think about it personally. It, the, the sermon that your life is preaching has a text. And it has a context. But it also has a subtext. And the sermon that your life is preaching can't be, aren't we great and aren't I great and isn't truth great? It's got to be, isn't Jesus Christ great? Is that what people get when they read the subtext of your life. And I want to encourage you as well that the message that this morning brings us to is a message that reminds us that we don't have to accept past defeats. We don't have to live down on a low ebb of faith or victory when we have Jesus Christ as King. It's not a a, as-good-as-it-gets kind of life that God has called us to, There really is hope for a better future, and God showed us through David that on every front, east, north, south, and west, God can give you grace to be an overcoming person. I don't care what the enemy is. I don't care what drags you down. I don't know what it is in your personal life, but I believe that the Bible is true. I believe that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You, have, you can do two things in response to this truth. You can, first of all, bring your life to Jesus in sincerity and begin praying focused about that area that you've experienced defeat in. And secondly, what God has asked you to do is He, he wants you to bring others into that area as well. He does not want you walking in isolation. He does not want you trying to defeat the enemies of your life by yourself. He wants you to invite trusted others in you that know the Lord God, that can pray for you and support you. And God wants you to defeat that enemy together. I would ask that we take a time to worship now. And as we worship the Lord, I'd ask you to bring these things to your life, to, to the Lord. And uh, may God bless you as you conclude this service, that something of what I've said today will be taken home with you today and applied.